0: In the 1st century, we learned that the Romans, who had a huge empire with wine and pizza, invaded Britain, who had mud huts and jelly deals. The 2nd century started with the Romans having built roads the length and breadth of the land and building military camps along routes to maintain the situation. They built walls to keep the Scots out, including the famous Hadrian's Wall, which is mostly still there to this day. With 40,000 fighting men stationed in the country, there was a constant traffic up and down the Roman roads and this meant the opportunity to trade. The soldiers needed food and clothes and mugs and knives and cooking pots, etc. The Romans introduced money and a monetary economy was gradually established, though at this stage mostly confined to towns and cities. Peasants who had to pay taxes brought produce to the city and traded it for coins there. Many Roman soldiers left the army, retiring, invalided out, sacked, etc., and settled down with local girls. The main motivation for the Roman invasion was mineral wealth, not just tin, but lead, gold, coal and iron. These minerals were very profitable. The Romans also promoted the growing of grain crops, but the climate made growing of grapes and olives impossible, which the Romans appear not to have expected. The Roman lifestyle gradually spread, Building square houses out of bricks in compounds with walls around them had its advantages. Trading with the Roman army made good money, and some people, both Briton and Roman, built villas, and temples to Roman gods were also built, as were public baths. A new social structure developed. Forest was cleared to feed the Roman demand for timber, and the land cleared in this way fell into the hands of those with money, rather than the traditional landed gentry. This land was more fertile and the new landowners, with access to books on farming, became even more wealthy and they built large villas to display their newfound wealth. Of course, managing a productive farm requires a large staff and a villa is a business as much as it is a family home. Rome was having significant turmoil at this time, which probably encouraged a degree of local decision making. A number of large cities were built Colchester, London, York, Chester, Leicester, Lincoln, and these were populated by people connected with the bureaucracy. There were relatively few smaller cities and towns. London expanded to over 50,000 people. The cities were built on a grid pattern with a forum at the centre, and the big cities provided an administration over large areas with bureaucracy administering the taxes. To many Britons in the south, the Romans brought enormous improvements in diet, especially the introduction of many fruits and vegetables, but the benefits went both ways. For example, merging the skills of both parties led to higher levels of production of pigs, and British-reared beef was much preferred to the Roman kind by the soldiers. The introduction of bathing led to southern British smelling better, and the introduction of expensive doctors with training based on books going back to ancient Greek times, and medications based on specific formula, led to improvements in health. It was not all good, though. Roman baths spread diseases, especially eye diseases, and doctors, especially opticians, probably did quite well out of that. Some locals learned specialist skills, like vets, toolmakers and grain farmers. There were even British mosaic companies established by the end of the 2nd century, Some not only learned Latin, they learned to carve bilingual graffiti on the walls. However, for most of this century, the bulk of the population, life continued as usual, living in mud huts by the river and relying on the knowledge passed on by granny for medicine. The majority of locals in contact with the invaders remained labourers, slaves and prostitutes. At this point, I think I should talk a bit about life in the Roman army, the Roman army was a well disciplined organization with rules and regulations, as one would expect in an organization that spanned most of the known world at that time. These rules covered social activity as well as issues to do with fighting. Men enlisted for a period of 20 years and were well paid throughout that time, with an additional married man's allowance available. On retiring, they received a fairly generous pension. Most soldiers enlisted around the age of 20, so they retired around the age of 40, but some enlisted as young as 16. They could, and many did, re-enlist for another 20 years after that. Of course, since it was an army, some died in battle. A lot more died of infectious diseases. However, the army had trade medics, about one medic to every 300 men, though this did vary. The civilian population of Britain did not have medics. The life expectancy of a Roman soldier was almost certainly better than the life expectancy of a typical male Briton. Life expectancy of women who survived childbirth was far better than for men who lived past a similar age. And without modern medicine, the death rate of boys under the age of five is far higher than for girls. And for teenage boys, well, they're well known for killing themselves in reckless behaviour even without access to knives, spears and chariot racing. A retired soldier with a good pension was a very good marriage prospect for a local widow, and there were a lot of local widows. His pension and worldly knowledge meant he could easily start a business in Britain. Even if he did not, his pension would be worth a lot more in Britain than in Rome. Marriage to local women, however, was not recognised by the army. Soldiers were not encouraged to have dependents following them around. There were common-law marriages, but they were excluded from inheritance under army regulations. But there was no law against soldiers making wills to pass their possessions to their common-law wives and their children on their death, and it did happen. However, there were ways around the restriction on marrying local girls. Maids or servant women could have their freedom bought by their master. At this point, they became Roman citizens. It would appear that the soldiers often bought out their cooks or maidservants and then married them off to their colleagues in the army. Alternatively, local women took on Latin names and pretended they were Romans. Bear in mind, most Roman soldiers had never been anywhere near Italy and probably spoke little Latin. In fact, we know for sure many of the soldiers who built Hadrian's Wall were actually from various parts of North Africa, everywhere from Libya to Egypt. Yes, they did complain about the cold weather, a lot, and the complaints included a lot of swearing. They were soldiers. As a result of this, the boundary between who was Roman and who was not rapidly became blurred. It was quite obvious that the families led by an older, well-off, retired ex-soldier living in a brick house with a tiled roof in a city protected by the army were better off than those headed by an ill-fed local boy living in a mud hut by the river. Not only did women generally know which side of the bread is buttered, they're typically quite fond of butter. Some of these ex-soldiers used their contacts in the army and in their home countries to set up import and export businesses, exporting metal, wood, woven fabric or grain and importing wine, olive oil and fancy pottery. Northern Britons continued to fight the Romans, who had a large garrison of legionnaires and auxiliaries to fight back. They also had horses, chariots, swords, spears, communications and organisation. It was during this century that the Emperor Hadrian came and built a wall right across the country to keep the Scots out, and it's still there to this day. Later they built the Antonine Wall a little further north but it proved to be a wall too far, and the Romans quickly retreated back behind Hadrian's Wall. North of Hadrian's Wall, the Scots retained their independence, but continued to smell bad, eat a poor diet and live in mud huts, and generally have a tough life. To the south of Britain, Gaul, the present-day France and Germany, etc., was much easier to get to from Rome by road, and consequently life was more advanced and prosperous than in Britain. Using their modern names, the Roman cities of the 1st century were York, Lincoln, Gloucester, Cirencester, Colchester, St Albans and London. These cities each had a population of about 5,000, not really what we'd call a city today. A quick look at Google Maps shows that apart from Gloucester, these cities are all quite close to the east coast. This is significant. The population of the East Coast was a series of tribes who were not on good terms, probably spoke different languages, populated by people from different parts of mainland Europe, from Norway through what is now Denmark, Germany, Holland and Belgium, and France. Although these country names are modern, the languages and boundaries are not the same as 2,000 years ago. At that time, people were called Angles, Saxons, Jutes, being from Angleland, modern Netherlands, Saxony, modern Germany, and Jutland, modern Denmark. Their languages are all descended from Old High German, and in England merged to form what we today call Anglo-Saxon. We still retain the names East Anglia, Essex, and Sussex from East and South Saxons to show where these communities were. The Romans said if the tribes stopped fighting each other long enough to gang up on the Romans, the Romans would be finished. The West Coast was a different story. From the north of Scotland through Wales, Cornwall and all down the west of Europe through Ireland, Brittany in France and Galicia in Spain, Portugal and maybe even to Morocco in Africa, the people were Celts who spoke Gaelic and many still do. They not only shared their language, they shared their culture, lifestyle, music and dance. Their oral history says they spread north from Iberia, Spain or Portugal, probably starting from 800 BC. The Romans were unable to tell them apart by language or dress. While few people travelled very far, most villages were in regular contact with the one to the north and south of them along the coast, and news was passed between them in poetry and song. I've heard the same traditional Irish tune that I know of as The Night That A Rafferty's Pig Ran Away in Morlay in France and Acarunia in Spain. I've seen people play it on bagpipes and dance to it in Porto, Portugal on YouTube. There are many other tunes in the same tradition. Notice that the word Abba, which means river, all the way from Aberdeen through Aberystwyth and Abergavenny in Wales to Abervrach and Aberildut in France and is the origin of the English word harbour. These people were mainly fishermen and traded between their communities as well as passing on their songs and dances. However, they also controlled areas where valuable mining took place before the Romans came, and this trading may have been how the Romans knew about the mineral wealth in Britain before they invaded. The Celts did not go east, but travelled the western edge of Europe because of the limitation of their sailing ships. On the Atlantic coast, the wind blows from the west, which means sailing ships can leave at high tide, drift out to sea, and then sail north or south to the next river. But if they went east, say up the English Channel, they couldn't get back. The traditional dress is similar over the whole region. Both sexes wore a long linen skirt as an undergarment. Women generally wore separate tops and skirts over the top, often with several layers of skirts made of different materials in different colours. Their tops often had short sleeves under sleeveless jackets, so the colour of the top was visible where the sleeves came out. Men wore long trousers, loosed at the hips and tight at the ankles, or, further north, kilts. The word trousers is Gaelic in origin. The trousers had belt loops, and the belts were leather, sometimes plain, sometimes coloured, and often with metal ornamentation, like modern bikers. Both sexes wore leather shoes, low or high, according to requirements. Everyone wore a woollen cloak like a blanket over the top for warmth if it was cold, fastened with a brooch. The higher your status, the more colours you wore. Kings wore six colours, slaves one. While the Romans claimed to have invaded the Celtish lands, they did not build any cities there, so in all probability they did not go there in any numbers. Actually, they did bump against the Celts in Brittany and Galicia, but not a lot. So in summary, the 2nd century, a period every bit as long as from 1920 till now, saw most of Britain transition from being a few villages of peasants in mud huts and a few military camps, to being a multicultural society with cities and a road network with regular traffic far more similar to today. To find out what happens next, don't miss the next podcast in this series, Episode 3, coming soon to a pod near you. Bye for now.